Genesis chapter 29 is our scripture passage this morning, verses 13 through 35. Jacob is uh, fleeing for his life from his brother Esau. He travels to the, what would have been to the east, in order to find his extended family. And as he's doing so, he happens to come across uh, a damsel in distress, a shepherdess who needs help with her her flocks, who turns out to be his first cousin, Rachel. Jacob is a a very he's kind of superhuman in his strength because there's a large rock that is covering the well normally it's removed by several men but in this instance Jacob himself goes and he lifts the stone and he takes care of the animals while Rachel runs home to tell her father Laban what is what has taken place that's the background to verse 13 as soon as Laban heard the father heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son. He ran to meet him and embraced him and, and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all the things that had been happening, all these things, and Laban, Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than, than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening... He took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant, which matters later in the story. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Didn't I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved her. He loved Rachel more than Leah. He served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord, when Yahweh saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because Yahweh has looked upon my affliction, 
for now my husband, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore she... Therefore, his name was called Levi, which means attached. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Praise, or Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So here you have a woman who has weak eyes weak eyes. I mean, it could mean a lot of different things. It could be that Leah was born with a birth defect. She could be cross-eyed. She could have droopy, like one droopy eye. It may mean that. It may mean that the standard of beauty in that country was lively, sparkling, glowing eyes, eyes that were enhanced with cosmetics. But she has weak eyes. I think that what is happening in the story was of Laban's doing. I am just assuming that Leah, really, she didn't have, she didn't have much that she could have said or done to resist it. After all, these are, well, they married pretty young back in that day. She might be a teenage girl, early 20s at the latest. I'm assuming that it was Laban who came up with a scheme to impersonate her sister Rachel on the the wedding night. I'm assuming that refusal was not an option for teenage young Leah. I think it was Laban's doing. I think that Laban was afraid that he might be stuck with this younger daughter. He would never be able to pawn her off. For the rest of his life, he'd be stuck with her. So he sees here a golden opportunity to switch and impersonate the daughters. And it's also sinister. <laughs> Many of the pieces of the story, the reader, we the readers are left to imagine what happened. What happened to Rachel that night? Did, and what do they do to her? What do they do with her? Tie her up and gag her and, and put her in a corner? drug her. She's fast asleep. Maybe maybe Laban threatened her and that was enough. And how could Jacob be ignorant of the fact that he was was spending the night with a woman who wasn't his wife? (laughs) That's a bit strange. Well, the answer to that question is probably pretty easy. He was was drunk. (laughs) It was alcohol. He and the men had been, they'd been spending the majority of the day Drinking, He is three sheets to the wind when Laban brings his daughter Leah, covered in a veil, probably wearing Rachel's perfume, dressed even in Rachel's clothing. In the dark of the night, she comes to him. No words are exchanged. She's under strict instructions. Don't say a word to him. It wouldn't have mattered if she did because Jacob is... He's gone. He's passed out shortly 
thereafter, quickly asleep. And then the very next morning, you get what is the, is got to be one of the classic lines in all of the Bible. When morning came, it was Leah. Right? Headache and heartache. You know, Garth Brooks material right there. It was Leah. Laban never actually agreed to the deal. Did you notice that when, when Jacob was trying to arrange it, he never says yes. He uses very funny language, very fuzzy language. He says, better for me to give her to you than to somebody else. But he never says yes. And then he says, in our part of the country, we never let the secondborn take the place of the firstborn which was a slap across his face. That's, that's what Jacob did with Esau. This, this moment of uh, poetic justice. I've heard it said that the concept of romantic love is, is mostly a modern creation. And you didn't marry back then for the sake of romantic love. You married for procreation, for the stability of the society, for the for the good of your clan. And I think that, as a general rule, that's the case. But it doesn't seem to fit this passage, does it? Because Jacob marries Rachel because he's head over heels for her in romantic love. And, and Rachel probably feels the same way about him. And Leah probably had the same desires, the desires of a woman who wants to be cherished. It doesn't... Every woman in the world want to be cherished, want to have at least one male figure in her life that says, you are the most beautiful woman on the face of the planet. I am in love with you. And, and Leah doesn't have any such person because her father doesn't want her. Father wants to pawn her off. And her husband says, I don't want you. I want your sister. And not 24 hours into this marriage, she, he says, I am not interested in you at all. I am interested in your sister. And this was the sister who, who she probably grew up hating. You think of if you're the older sister, you're the ugly duckling, and you have the elegant young swan who is a few years younger than you. You could just imagine the years of resentment and frustration that must have built up never being able to measure up to the beauty of your younger sister. And here it is. You're married for 12 hours, and your husband says, I want your younger sister. And it's that sister who you've probably grown to hate, and it's that sister that you are going to spend the rest of your life in the same home with, under the same roof with, competing for the affections of the same man with, for all till death do us part. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible, tragic story. Jacob is seething with resentment at having been tricked. Rachel is burning with resentment for having been cheated out of sole possession of her husband. Laban is giddy in excitement because he's been able to finally get rid of his ugly daughter. And here we have, I think, one of the most powerful places in the Bible to show us that the Bible is not a book of virtues. It's not a book of virtues. It's not a story of a bunch of virtuous characters who we put 
on Sunday school flannel boards and, and hold up as an example. These are the type of people that, that we ought to emulate. It's not a book of virtues. And while there are a few virtuous people, the reason the Bible is such a great book is because it's filled with people like this. These people. These people are the characters of its stories. So what I want to do I found this to be the most interesting part of analyzing the passage is to ask the question, what do these people want? What are their desires? And do they ever actually get what they desire in the end? So what do these people want? What does Laban want? Laban wants money. One of the Jewish readers, when they go through this passage, they suggest, they suggest that the reason Laban runs out to greet Jacob is because the very last time somebody had come from the West as part of the extended family of Abraham. When they had come to visit Laban, they came with 10 camels laden with, with, with goods and riches. And so Laban runs out to find the 10 camels this time, and there aren't any. So he gives him a big hug to see if... Jacob might be hiding some gold <laughs> underneath, underneath his robes. He's, he's, he's feeling, checking him out. Laban wants money. Once he finds out that Jacob is a good worker, he tries to keep Jacob working for him while paying him as little as possible. You, the bride price or the dowry that he charges Jacob here, seven years of wages is a tremendous amount of money to charge your nephew. <laughs> if you're talking with your uncle, your uncle is supposed to say, no, 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 we are brothers, bone of my bone. Seven years, no, seven days. Jacob, in the end, serves Laban for a total of 20 years. And only six of those years does he ever get paid. Laban makes a killing. And that's exactly what he expected to do. That's what Laban wants. What does Rachel, beautiful Rachel, what does Rachel desire? Rachel wants babies. Rachel is infertile. She suffers from infertility, and she desperately, desperately wants to have children. In the very next chapter, uh, she's, she's crying out to, to, to Jacob to give her her children because in their culture, Infertility was a, was a great shame. It brought with it great disgrace. The goal of motherhood, the goal of being a wife, was, in order, was to have and raise as many sons as you possibly could. And here is Rachel, covered with disgrace, desperately needing ch- children that she cannot produce. And what about Jacob? What does Jacob want? Yeah, obviously, Jacob wants Rachel. But this is one of those instances where be careful what you wish for. Because Jacob, once he has her, he discovers that she is, she's really a nag. And at one point he exclaims, who do you think I am? Do you think I am God? I cannot give you children. He's, he's, she's driving him nuts with her desires for kids. She's this compulsive demanding 
beautiful on the outside, (laughs) but a woman that he can't stand to live with. What does Jacob want? Jacob, maybe maybe Jacob wants a little bit of peace and quiet. (laughs) But I think, well, here's the most, here's what happens with Jacob's life. From the end of chapter 29 through the remainder of chapter 30, that that is the central, one of the central narrative sections that describes Jacob's life. Do you have any idea what Jacob is doing in the one of the central narrative sections? What is he doing all that time? He is enslaved to sex. Does nothing but go and sleep with one woman after another, with one wife. Then it's one wife's servant, one wife's wife's slave. Jacob becomes a sex slave. As, as radical as that sounds, it's, it's true. The, the wives are constantly quarreling among themselves or over who's going to have him tonight. Jacob, I've purchased you for the night, they say. And he, he blindly obeys. I said earlier in the, in the passage how Jacob is a very strong man, physically a Hulk-like character, and yet he is so passive that he blindly does whatever his wives tell him to do. So passive is Jacob that he doesn't even name his own sons. You don't have to know anything about ancient Near Eastern patriarchal culture to know that it's kind of the role of the husband to name his sons. But you read through the story and you find that it's the, it's the, it's the ladies who do all of the naming. He doesn't name a single one of them. All of this is set within the context of this, for lack of a better word, a great breeding war that is taking place between Rachel and Leah. This fight to basically find out who can have more children. Verse 32. Leah conceives and bears a son, and she calls his name Reuben, which means, see, a son. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, he's given me a son, and now my husband will love me. Verse 35, again she conceives and bears a son and says, now now this time my husband will be attached to me. And so she names the boy attached, which means Levi. And then she says, and one of the sons, she says, now the Lord has given me another son because he saw that I was I was hated by my husband, and, and now my husband now my husband will will love me. This this woman is so desperate for love that she she uses her children as, as objects to try to get it. It's like uh, it's like a crack addict who who stands on the, the corner with their with their little baby panhandling for money and she's trying to panhandle for love. Later in the story, Leah, she brings her sons into this great combat. She tells Reuben, Reuben, go out and pick for me mandrakes. Mandrakes. It was basically a a plant that was used in pagan love potions. Pick me some mandrakes because I'm going to grind them up tonight and put them in your father's dish. 
And so does Leah ever get what she wants? Does she get love? In the very next chapter, she bears her sixth and final son, and she names him Zebulun, which means honor. She says, now my husband will finally honor me. Six pregnancies later. And it never happens. Rachel, does she get what she wants? Does she get what she desires? It says that she burned with envy every time she watched Leah have a child. Every day that she begged God for a child of her own. And every time she would hear the name Reuben called out. Reuben, which, see, a son. You can almost hear Leah in the background. Reuben, see a son. And every day there's... There's Leah. Ah, the, the knife just goes in an inch deeper. Well, finally, she tells Jacob to sleep with one of her slaves. And she says, let that child that's born of my slave count in my favor. Long story short, the, the breeding wars come to an end. And at the end of the contest, you look up at the scoreboard. scoreboard and the scoreboard reads, Leah 8, Rachel 4. Uh, Team Rachel loses in a landslide. So the slaves each bear two sons apiece. That's four. Rachel bears two sons, and Leah ends up bearing six sons. Rachel goes to her grave bearing the shame that she could not outproduce a slave. And she goes to the grave bearing the shame that her ugly sister was three times the woman that she ever was. She was. Her sister was three times as blessed as she ever would be. And she goes to the, as I said, she goes to the grave covered in that, in that infamy. Then Laban, does, does Laban ever get what, what he wants at the end of the story? You may, you probably, if you've read ahead, you know that Jacob leaves in the dead of the night and he takes with him a vast, vast amount of Laban's wealth, the best of his flocks and, and a few other things like idols that get stolen from him. Idols get stolen from his house. He takes Laban's daughters. He takes Laban's grandchildren in the dead of the night and they never even say goodbye. They hate their father's guts. So where in the world am I going with this sermon? And, and here's where. Here's the bottom line. I've gone into all of the painstaking detail of the story to demonstrate to you that everybody in the story is sinning. Everybody in the story is being sinned against. Everybody in the story has desires, many of them good desires, a d- desire for love, desire for, for family, a happy family, Desires that are, are a mixture of good and bad and pure and impure motives. But everybody has these competing desires. And in the end, nobody gets what they want. Everybody is left feeling deeply frustrated and, and sorrowful. In this dysfunctional soap opera, everyone is, is left feeling terrible. And you, and you ask yourself the question, why does God put a story like this in the Bible? And as soon as you ask that question, you immediately you know, figure out the answer. It's because 
yeah, this is real life. This is what it feels like to live in a broken world. This is what it, what it looks like to live in this world. Maybe it's not, as, not quite as lurid as some polygamist hell as we have described here, but this is what fundamentally happens when you have sinners sinning against each other, being sinned against, turning perfectly good desires and, and taking them and making them into idolatrous wants and wishes. Tim Keller preached a, a sermon on this passage about 15 years ago, one of his most famous sermons, where he has one of his best sermon punchlines. I'll get to it in a second here. But he says that this story speaks to the cosmic disappointment and disillusionment we experience in this life, especially when we take good things and turn them into idols. All of us would agree that... Uh, love and marriage, that those are perfectly good things to desire. And children, wanting to have children are good, but, quote, no matter what your hopes for a project, no matter what your hopes for a career, no matter what you think Rachel is, he says, in the morning, behold, it's always Leah. That's the, that's the, he does it a lot better than I do, but that's the punchline. In the morning, it's always Leah. In every event and through every aspect of your life, there will always be this note of cosmic disappointment running through it because you and I expect way too much out of this life. We expect way too much out of the people who inhabit this life with us and the things that fill this life. We, we place hopes and expectations on this life, that this life is not capable of ever, ever delivering. It's like going to the, the well and hoping to drink from the, the deepest waters in that well, lifting it up to the surface with a bucket that, is, that has a gaping hole in the bottom of it. We place hopes and expectations that that have gaping holes in the bottom of them. And nowhere is this more true than in terms of romantic love. This is a passage about romantic love. And it's perfectly good and right for us to, to want romantic love. And yet we have drilled into our hearts and our minds and like every piece of pop culture and pop music and, and story Every Disney story, the, the, the essence of life, the way to live a good life is to experience deep romantic love. And whatever we're basing our lives on, in the morning, behold, it is Leah. I'm deeply sympathetic with Leah in this story, so I hate that she's the punchline of the, of the sermon because we, we, we could say just as easily that in the morning, behold, it was Jacob. I mean, would you want to wake up with that guy by your side? In the morning, it was Jacob, a man who was enslaved to sex. It was Rachel, a woman who was enslaved to motherhood and to the status associated with motherhood. And in the morning, there's always a man standing outside the tent who is trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip who is your boss and his name is, is Laban. 
But in the morning, there's always a cosmic disappointment because we're always expecting this life to deliver something and our idols to deliver something that they can't possibly deliver for us. Which leads me to two points, briefly, two application points. Number one, what does this story mean to the original hearers of the story? What did, what did it mean? What did it mean to them? Well, it was a story of identity first and foremost. When that firstborn child, Reuben, comes out of the womb, and Leah says, "I have a great idea. Let's name him Reuben." As soon as that happens, a massive cheer comes out of the background. Rah! A cheer comes from the crowd. You say, "Who is the crowd that is cheering?" It's the crowd of the Reubenites. It's the 10,000 of them that are standing on the edge of the promised land as Moses is telling to them this story about their origins. What do they, what do they learn about themselves? They, they are amazed that anybody ever survived living in this home. <laughs> It's amazing that, that we came from this. All of us. We came out of this. The muck and mire of, of this. I guess God knew what he was doing. I guess he was, he was really faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham to give him a family as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And then the name Simeon comes out, and there's a shout out to the Simeonites. Look at us! Look at all of us! And we came from something as wretched and dysfunctional as this. I guess, I guess God has been faithful to his promises. It didn't look like it was ever going to happen with all the gunk and sin. And if you were living through it, it would create a fog of despair where you would never expect God could make anything good out of this, but he does. Now, I don't have to tell you, um, I don't have to tell you that this life is, is full of disappointments. Principally because we, we don't get a lot of the things that we most desperately want. But God also doesn't promise most of the things that we most def desperately want. Um, it's interesting. What he promises is that he'll be with us through every trial. He's promised to build his church and to meet the needs of many through the body of Christ, his church. I can tell you that some of my greatest anguish, personally, is I don't get what I want. I want to be a better pastor than I am, a better preacher than I am. I want my church to you know, conquer Boise for the sake of Jesus Christ. I want my, my children to, to have the, the richest, fullest relationship with Jesus, and every night we have great family worship. I don't get all of those things. But of course, God didn't promise me all of those things. He didn't promise you the vast majority of the things that you're disappointed about. So I, I just want us to be reminded that those are the things, the, the things that God have, has promised are the things that we need to be trusting him for. That's what we need to be trusting him for. Number two. 
The second point of application is I think that this passage speaks very powerfully to women in particular, especially women who are suffering through a loveless marriage. This is a, this is a passage that speaks to, to any of you in this room today who are suffering through a loveless marriage. And what I like, I'd like all of the ladies here to just imagine with me for a minute that Leah is your best friend. She comes to you, and she's, she's going to pour her heart out to you and tell you, I mean, as soon as she starts talking, this tidal wave of sadness and anger and frustration, all these things that her husband has done to her, all the sadness, the crushing disappointment of having a marriage be like this kind of a marriage. And my question to you is, what do you say to Leah? How do you counsel her? Because you have a woman there who feels completely worthless. I mean, if the, the major male figures in your life, your father and your husband, want nothing to do with you, uh, and they don't think that you're very beautiful or valuable, then, I mean, you're not going to feel most likely very beautiful or valuable. What do you say to her? Well, I hope what you would do is you would take her back to who she is in Jesus Christ. And you remind her again that it's God who determines our value. Living consciously with the understanding of who we are are in Jesus Christ is, is the most important thing in the world. It's the most important thing that enables us to endure all of the, the sadnesses that come in a loveless, loveless marriage. Let's say, for instance, that you were to steal $100 from a woman who is living on and making only minimum wage. Steal $100 from her, and she is, she's going to feel that loss, isn't she? But if you were to steal $100 from a woman who is a multi-multi-millionaire, even $1,000 from a woman like that, she's a whole lot more equipped to deal with that loss. If, if you have a, a husband who never tells you that you're beautiful, but does that mean that you have to spend the rest of your life feeling like you're not beautiful? Of course not, because it's God who says, it's God who determines our value. And he's the one who said, if he says you are on fire, drop dead, gorgeous in my sight, in Jesus Christ, which is something that you do not believe in the slightest, um, but it's something that you, you can grow in, in an awareness of. You can grow in an awareness of the riches that you possess in the gospel. And so I, that's what I, where I would start. I hope you would say that, say that to that woman who comes to you. Uh, a book that I think is really helpful in this regard is Gary Thomas's Sacred Influence. I know some ladies, it's not the right book for them, but... Uh, and I don't agree with everything that he says, but I think it's it's a really useful book. Gary Gary Thomas's sacred sacred influence. Um, the other thing that you should say to her is is that you have to speak hope into another woman's life. 
You have to tell her that God can use her marriage to an irritable man to teach her how to love angry people. That God can use her husband's faults to, as tools to shape her into an even more beautiful woman than she already is. And that God can use being married to an emotionally distant man to teach her how to be more patient and how to be more understanding. The, the example that a woman like that sets for her children is absolutely critical. Because if we say to our children that the essence of life, the only way to really have a, a happy life is to experience a romantically satisfying and fulfilling marriage, if we say that to our kids, which is what everybody else in the world says, and if we show them that model and message, we are, we are consigning them to a crushing blow in the future, aren't we? I mean, because most marriages are not that great. And if you, if we say to them by our actions that, it, that you need the white picket fence and the minivan full of children in order to be truly, truly satisfied in this life, the white picket fence will crucify them one day. No, you don't have to you don't have to have an entirely rotten existence, even if you're living in rotten circumstances. You say that to her. And then you say to her, you just speak scripture back to her. You say, Leah, I am going to, with you, by faith, help you rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that your sufferings will produce perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And that type of hope is a, is a hope that will not will never disappoint. And you pray with her. You pray that, that God would enable her to rejoice, to consider it pure joy, whatever, whatever various trials she's experiencing, knowing that the testing of her faith right now in this most tender place of her life will produce in her perseverance, godly character, and hope. And that these trials have come, First Peter, so that her faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. That God will make her a stronger, a wiser, and more beautiful woman in Jesus Christ, which when he does that, she will discover that's truly the most satisfying thing in this life, to, to be conform to the image of Jesus Christ. What could be more satisfying than that? And then you tell her finally that our present trials are preparing for her an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And she doesn't believe a word of it. Like none of these passages she believes. And that's why you have to keep speaking them to her again and again and again. And, pr and praying them for her, and pressing them into her. Because these are the promises God is faithful to answer. When you come to the end of life, and you've made it through all of the sadness and dysfunction of, of whatever soap opera, you'll find that these are the promises God is faithful to answer and you'll never be disappointed. So, keep believing. 
Keep believing in Jesus. Keep hoping in Jesus. Keep clinging to Jesus. Keep pushing your sisters in Christ to Jesus. And God will be faithful to answer those promises. Amen.